for some discussion. So, Clive Staples Lewis. Who knew that? Clive Staples Lewis. <laughs> right. Also known by his friends and family. Anybody know this? As Jack. His friends and family called him Jack. So if I refer to Jack while I'm speaking, you'll know who I'm talking about. <clears throat> so Clive Staples Lewis, born the second of two sons into a family of Protestants in Belfast, Ireland, November 29, 1898. His father, Albert, and his mother, Florence Augusta Hamilton, were highly intelligent, well-read people, and they were members of the Church of Ireland. Eclectic in their reading tastes, they purchased and read many books, and their love for the printed word was passed on to their children. Jack, as Lewis was known to friends and family, and his brother Warren, were not only read to aloud and taught to read, they were encouraged to use the large family library. In his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, C.S. Lewis recalled early memories of endless books. There were books in the study, books in the dining room, books in the cloakroom, books too deep in the great bookcase on the landing, books in a bedroom, books piled as high as my shoulder in the cistern attic, attic. books of all kinds. He remembered, and none were off limits to him. On rainy days, and there were many in Northern Ireland, he pulled volumes off the shelves and entered into worlds created by authors such as Conan Doyle, Nesbitt, Twain, and Longfellow. After his brother was sent off to boarding school in England, he became somewhat reclusive. He spent more time in books in an imaginary world of animals and knights in armor, which kind of foreshadows a little bit of his future. But he did more than read books. He wrote and illustrated his own stories as well as a child. If Warren's, and they call it an exile across the Irish Sea, his brother Warren, to boarding school, drove him further into himself and his books, there was another incident that pushed him that way too. Is his mother died of cancer in 1908 and made him even more withdrawn. Her death became just three months prior to Jack's 10th birthday. And the young man was hurt deeply by her passing. Not only did he lose a mother, his father never fully recovered from her death. And for many years thereafter, both boys felt estranged from their father. And home life was never warm and satisfying again. The death of Mrs. Lewis convinced young Jack that the God he encountered in church and in the Bible, his mother gave him, was, if not cruel, at least a vague abstraction. Four or five years later, by 1911 or 1912, Lewis rejected Christianity and became an avowed atheist. Having become an atheist and a materialist, 
with a reviving interest in magic and the occult, which I also didn't know this until I researched him, Lewis, in what he calls one of the worst acts of my life, received confirmation and first communion in total disbelief so as to avoid having to explain his situation with his father. By autumn 1914, Lewis was adrift. He had lost his faith in his mother and he felt alienated from his dad. He was extremely close to his brother, but they saw one another only on holidays. He says, I maintained that God did not exist. I was also very angry with God for not existing. A new friendship was beginning with a fellow student, Arthur Greaves, but it was interrupted in September when St. Louis, St. Louis, C.S. Lewis, <laughs> was sent to the great tutor, well, in his mind, to be W.T. Kirkpatrick, who was a brilliant teacher and a friend of Lewis's father. The great knock, K-N-O-C-K as the Lewis family dubbed Mr. Kirkpatrick, had a profound effect upon this teenage youth. He introduced him to the classics in Greek, Latin, and Italian literature and helped him begin to learn German. Kirkpatrick not only led Lewis to great books, he pushed him to understand them in the original languages. A most demanding tutor, Kirkpatrick helped Jack learn how to criticize and analyze, and he taught him how to think, speak, and write logically. Consequently, after nearly three years under his tutelage, Lewis was tough-minded and widely read. Many years later, Lewis wrote in Surprised by Joy that my debt to him is very great, my reverence to this day undiminished. The debt was large indeed, Kirkpatrick helped the young man prepare for scholarship examinations at Oxford, and the demanding mentor played a no small role in Lewis's outstanding performance in school, where he, learned, he earned the highest honors. If Kirkpatrick taught Lewis to think critically, to demand evidence for even the most casual assertions, Oxford introduced him to a wide horizon of ideas. Whereas Lewis hard-pressing mentor had helped him reinforce his atheism. A few associates at Oxford forced him to re-examine his belief in a universe without God. So Kirkpatrick was his wonderful tutor and educated him in so many ways. He reinforced his atheism by the way he taught him to critically think. So, Oxford... Lewis entered the world of Oxford in 1917 as a student, and he never really left. Despite an interruption to fight in World War I and his professorship at Cambridge, beginning in 1955, he always maintained his home and his friends in Oxford. He loved the bookshops, the pubs, and he reveled in the company of local men who loved to read, write, and discuss books. His attachment to Oxford was so strong that when he taught at Cambridge from 55 to 63, he commuted back to Oxford 
on weekends so that he could be close to familiar places and beloved friends. With no particular purpose in life, (laughs) beyond stimulating his imagination, feeding his curiosity, and writing for publication and posterity, he thoroughly enjoyed and embraced academic life. In 1924, he became a philosophy tutor at University College. Then in 1925, he was elected a fellow of Magdalene College, where he tutored in English language and literature. Lewis demonstrated a generous and loving nature. When his college roommate, Patty Moore, was killed in World War I, that's Patty, P-A-D-D-Y, <laughs> Jack befriended his mother, Mrs. Janie King Moore, and her daughter, Maureen. Then in 1920, after completing his first degree, Lewis decided to share lodgings with them so that he could more carefully look out for their needs. He was caring for the mother and the sister of his roommate. This gesture of kindness did more to help Mrs. Moore and Maureen. It got C.S. Lewis outside of himself and maybe even taught him patience. The association with the Moors also introduced him to Mrs. Moore's brother, a combat veteran who suffered from a severe war-inflicted nervous disorder. This personal encounter apparently shook Lewis' confidence in materialism because a letter he wrote in 1923 to his old friend Arthur Greaves suggests a slight spiritual awakening. It seems that the doc as the Moors and Lewis referred to the veteran, came to stay with the trio for three weeks. And during the visit, he underwent an ordeal of extreme mental torture. After, when the poor wretch was hospitalized, quotes Lewis, Lewis wrote to his friend that Doc had believed he was in hell. He wore out his body in the awful mental torture and then died from heart failure unconscious at the end. Thank God. Lewis concluded his observation by suggesting it is a damned world and we once thought we could be happy with books and music. It was in Oxford that Lewis pursued things of the mind with fervor. Ideals, ideas, books, and debates were ordinary fare in his daily life. Among the authors who impressed him were the Scottish fantasy writer George MacDonald and the Catholic essayist and novelist G.K. Chesterton. So let's talk about MacDonald. MacDonald was a universalist theologian. When I say universalist theologian, he believed that everyone was a child of God, and everyone would be in heaven. So Lewis said of the author, George MacDonald, I have never concealed the fact that I regarded him as my master, and I know hardly any other writer who seems to be closer or more continually close to the spirit of Christ himself, which is interesting that he would say that um, as an atheist still at this point. 
Lewis referenced MacDonald in nearly every one of his works and wrote an anthology of his writings. MacDonald was a primary influence on the development of Lewis' religious beliefs. One MacDonald volume called Fantastes had a powerful impact on his thinking. Lewis says, what it actually did to me was to convert, even to baptize my imagination. I love that. Baptize my imagination. Yet, despite Lewis' admiration and emulation of MacDonald, he never really accepted the core belief of his master, which was universal salvation. George MacDonald believed that all mankind would be saved and returned to God eventually. Both men see God in his loving character, not as a vindictive or punitive God. Sin is not punishment, but consequence. Any child that comes to God in true repentance will be welcomed home. Lewis, while not accepting the universal salvation, does not believe God will turn away a repentant sinner. Instead, he believes if we are in hell, we would never become a repentant sinner. Lewis and MacDonald wrote vividly of the power of God's love to transform us. The difference lies in how far this love must go, or will go, ultimately. But whether we all return or not, they both believed God is our home. Chesterton. The two men are clearly kindred spirits. Lewis loved reading Chesterton, even in the days of his own atheism declaring that Chesterton had more common sense than all the moderns put together, except for his Christianity. <laughs> Chesterton's books, especially The Everlasting Man, raised serious questions about Lewis' materialism. Ironically, it would be Chester's exceptional Christianity that would be largely responsible for bringing Lewis to his knees in the best sense of the word. Lewis' conversation, or his conversion, being due in no small part to Chesterton's influence. Lewis wrote that it was the reading of Chesterton's The Everlasting Man that enabled him to see, for the first time, the Christian outline of history in a way that made sense to him. This book was, Lewis confessed, a major milestone in his own journey to Christ. Chesterton and Lewis were both known not only for befriending skeptics, but for actually delighting in these relationships. They committed their lives to genuine and, and caring relationships with people who held contrary truth claims. By the way, Jesus was kind of known for doing the same thing. All three model a way forward for sharing the gospel with people who think our beliefs are, our beliefs are delusional. The way is love. As the Apostle Paul said, we can have the tongue of angels, but if we don't have charity, our words are meaningless. It is really impossible to say we love skeptics if we don't actually know any. And I think this entails much more than the normal drive-by evangelism approaches of the of previous generations, and really of generations that we have now. Until we really love unbelievers, all of our quick gimmicks will likely fall short. 
I think that is, may repeat that. Until we really love unbelievers, all of our quick gimmicks will likely fall short. If your relationship with a skeptic is contingent upon them accepting the gospel, then you are starting in the wrong place. Your love for them must transcend these fundamental differences, and this is not to imply compromise, but rather a lifelong commitment that is motivated by biblical compassion. Lewis wrote, A young man who wishes to remain a sound atheist cannot be too careful of his reading. There are traps everywhere. Bibles laid open, millions of surprises, and as his friend Herbert said, fine nets and stratagems. God is, if I may say it, very unscrupulous. It was to be precisely Chesterton's books, Chesterton's books, namely The Eternal Man, as I mentioned above, and those of MacDonald, in particular The Shadows, that would prepare young Jack for the capitulation, which, however, would only happen with one final event dealt by his meeting with J.R.R. Tolkien. Father Joe, we, while you were out, we um, introduced the idea that his friends and family called him Jack. Yes. yes. Sorry for my answer. That's okay. I was disrupting Sunday school I was just making sure when I said Jack that you knew who I was referring yes. to. <laughs> so, Tolkien... Soon after joining the English faculty at Magdalen College, Lewis met J.R.R. Tolkien. He admired his brilliance and his logic. Soon Lewis recognized that most of his friends, like his favorite authors, MacDonald and Chesterton, held to this Christian angle of vision, which for Lewis threatened his whole worldview. After Lewis and Tolkien became friends in 1926 over their love of literature, Lewis began chiding Tolkien over his acceptance of the reality of Jesus. Lewis saw Jesus as a myth in the same way he would have seen Hercules or the Greek pantheon. Lewis had written about the pervasive nature of superstition and saw religion as squarely within that camp. That is, until he went for a walk with Tolkien. And although in 1929 Jack was already on his knees and had prayed to God desperately and reluctantly, it was Tolkien's friendship that brought him to the encounter with Christ. Lewis recounted his conversion in Surprised by Joy. The pair were walking on the grounds of Oxford University on Addison's Walk, which is along the River Churwell, near Magdalen College. The two were passionately discussing the nature of mythology. Tolkien argued that mythology is grounded in reality while being creatively imagined. While Lewis agreed with this, he did not feel that the Gospels invoked the same passion as other myths. Can you say that one more time? Yes. <laughs> mythology is grounded in reality while being creatively imagined. Yes. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> the account of Christ and his death and resurrection is a kind of myth, Lewis said. It works on our imagination in much the same way as other myths, but with this difference. 
It really happened. Lewis wrote about that night. The story of Christ is simply a true myth, a myth working on us in the same way as the others. So a true myth. He's, he's not fully acknowledging it. He's calling it a true myth. Okay, but, but this is progress. <laughs> but with, <clears throat> with this tremendous difference, it really happened. And one must be content to accept it in the same way, remembering that it is God's own myth where the others are men's myths i.e., the pagan stories, are God expressing himself through the minds of poets, using such images as he found there, while Christianity is God expressing himself through what we call real things. After this conversation, Lewis joined Christianity and became, by his own words, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. He says, I did not see what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own feet. But who can duly adore that love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought, kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance of escape? The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men. Like that. The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men. And his compulsion is our liberation. The world is a dangerous place, Lewis writes, especially for those who desire to keep their incredulity intact and prevent God from starting this process of liberation. Perils undermined his atheism. So he lists all the things that undermined his, his belief that there was no God. And he said some of those things were the beauty of nature, the art, the gift of joy, which life regales us in an ever sudden and unexpected manner. And then the encounter with others, real people, physically known, and those met through the meditation of reading. So here he is saying that people around him, the McDonald's, the Chestertons, the Tolkien's, served to undermine his atheism. And I, I, I love that, that thought. Um, <laughs> like Nicodemus, Lewis, the intellectual, had had his night filled with light and his life changed radically on that walk. From the moment he became an ardent, an ardent defender of faith, he regained a refined knowledge of Christian truth. Still today, his essays on faith, grief, and love are among the most effective works of 20th century Christian apologetics. In this regard, the story is uh, reminiscent of Chesterton's, although Lewis never succeeded in taking the formal steps to enter the Catholic Church. <laughs> Although he did so substantially, which is borne out by the numerous signs of his crypto-Catholicism and blah, 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 we're not going to go into that. Um, he was a clearly a Protestant, um, but his mentor, Chesterton, was not. He was concerned mostly with the joy which flows from the good news and sweeps away all the fantasies of rational human thought. 
he's got some fantastic, fantastic um, quotes, and I included some of them on your, some of my favorites on your, on your handout. So his legacy. The outreach of Lewis Books and the impact of his charity conspired to make still another significant change in his lifestyle. During the last decade of his life, <laughs> Lewis's world says his world was invaded by an American woman and her two children <laughs> turned upside down in autumn 1952. Joy Davidman Gresham. Her name is Joy. That's I'm, how cool. Who had become a Christian partly because she read the Great Divorce and the Screwtape Letters, visited her spiritual mentor in England soon after her husband abandoned her for another woman. In the meantime, the divorcee, a writer in her own right, moved to London with her two adolescent boys, David and Douglas. Joy Davidman Gresham gradually fell into financial trouble. Her acquaintance with C.S. Lewis led to his underwriting the boarding school education of David and Douglas. From charity and common literacy, interests grew into a deep friendship and eventually they fell in love. They were married in 1956. Joy was 16 years younger than Lewis, but that didn't prevent a happy marriage. Cancer, however, cut short their life. After several years of reprieve from a nearly fatal bout with cancer, Joy Lewis passed away in Oxford July 13, 1960. Joy's interest Entry into Jack's life brought much happiness. As he wrote to one friend soon after their marriage, it's funny having at 59 the sort of happiness most men have in their 20s. Thou hast kept the good wine till now. <laughs> Joy brought C.S. Lewis love, companionship, and two stepsons, complete with all the delights and problems that naturally come in such circumstances. Furthermore, Mrs. Lewis brought insight, idea, and a new angle of vision. She was raised in a Jewish home, and having written a book on the Ten Commandments called Smoke on the Mountain, she encouraged Lewis to renew his writing of apologetics, in particular, Reflections on the Psalms. Her influence on what Lewis considered his best book Till We Have Faces. Has anybody read that? It was so profound that he told one close friend that she was actually his co-author. Christian history shows, and I think our last um, two sessions have shown, that when men and women meet Jesus, recognize his nature, and then decide to trust and follow him, they become strikingly different people. Those who convert, who turn around and obey Christ's command to follow me, are clearly people with changed lives. If evidence of conversion is a new life, C.S. Lewis was obviously a believer after his walk in 1931. Many changes were apparent. His life now had a purpose to know and obey God. This came to fruition most demonstrably in his writing. The new Christian devoted his talent and energy to writing prose, 
that reflected his recently found faith. Within two years of his conversion, Lewis published The Pilgrim's Regress, an allegorical apology for Christianity, reason, and romanticism. Have you, has, you read that, Joe? That, that, that seems pretty deep. <laughs> Not a light read. This little volume opened a 30-year stream of books on Christian apologetics and discipleship that became his lifelong vocation. Between 1933 and his death in 1963, Lewis wrote books including the seven-volume Chronicles of Narnia, The Screwtape Letters, The Great Divorce, and Mere Christianity. These books nudged atheists and agnostics toward the faith and encouraged and nurtured believers. Remember, he was not afraid to be a friend of a skeptic. He embraced that. Despite the large quantity and very high quality of his publications, Lewis became known as a literary evangelist, which I think is is good. The tone and impact of his theological and apologetical books helped account for this reputation, as did his own assertion in rejoinder to his critic, and he did have them, Dr. W.N. Pittenger, who published in the Christian Century publication, where Lewis admitted that most of what he wrote is evangelistic. So I'm guessing at that time that that was not kind of a popular thing. Um, I think it's great. And I think it's changed, if not changed Christianity, it's changed the way that we view our relationship with Jesus. So if Christianity altered Lewis's writing habits, the publications of those books did have an effect on his personal life. He became so popular, and he received fan mail. (laughs) And because he believed that it was God's will for him to answer most of this mail himself, and because he was convinced, as he said in The Weight of Glory, that there are no ordinary people, he took time to write with care to each correspondent, regardless of age, education, or place in society. As you can imagine, this consumed many hours of his week. Furthermore, life as a celebrity (laughs) was laden with other pressures. There were invitations to entertain, interviews, lectures, and preach sermons. Writing, in contrast, was a lonely enterprise. And Lewis understood. And even though he felt called by God to write, he likewise felt it was required by him, required of him, to counsel those who made the pilgrimage to come to see him in his home on the edge of Oxford. Frequently he believed it was his calling to explain the Christian faith to people over the BBC radio and to the airmen at the RAF bases during World War II. Preaching sermons, giving talks, and expressing his theological views bolstered Lewis's reputation and increased his book sales. With these new circumstances came other changes. For most of his life, most of his adult life, he had been getting by on little, little money. During his student years, his father gave him an allowance, and he supplemented that in various ways, but money was always scarce. And then when he took on the responsibility for his roommate's mother and daughter, 
Finances are always tight, even with his regular tutorial stipend. As book royalties mounted during the late 40s and continued to spiral upward, Lewis refused to upgrade his standard of living, partly out of disdain for conspicuous living, but mostly out of commitment to Jesus. He established a charitable fund for his royalty earnings. Neither the extent nor the recipients of Lewis' charity are fully known. Indeed, he made valiant efforts to conceal this information. It is known that he supported numerous impoverished families, underwrote education fees for orphans and poor seminarians, and put money into scores of charities and church ministries. Lewis is remembered today as a writer and a Christian apologist, and many would argue the finest of the 20th century. He was not only a prolific writer, but remarkably diverse with an output that included children's books, scholarly volumes, science fiction, works on doctrine, and a moving personal account of his grief-ridden quarrel with God after his wife's death. His books have been adapted for stage, screen, and television, and he has been the subject of numerous biographies. While there is no telling how many people he has reached, the number surely ranks in the millions. Lewis died on the same day that President John F. Kennedy was assassinated. The news of Kennedy's death swamped what would otherwise have been a major story on the death of one of the most influential men of his time, C.S. Lewis. He wrote more than 40 books translated into more than 30 languages in various genres, apologetics, criticism, history, growth, poetry, sci-fi, fantasy. I mean, who in this day and age has that broad of a range? Not many folks. Lewis showed that reason is the anchor of faith. By presenting a defense of the Christian faith that appealed to reason, Lewis removed obstacles to faith that most people in our world face today. By restoring reason to its rightful place, Lewis showed how Christianity could appeal to those earnestly seeking answers to the great questions of life. As Lewis noted, Christ never meant that we were to remain children in intelligence. He wants a child's heart, but a grown-up's head. Lewis punctured the pomposity and the pretension of modern elite intellectuals. I think that's, that's um, interesting that they use the word pomposity um, in a sentence about pretension of elite intellectuals. That's just me. For example, he revealed that you cannot trust your own reason if we are solely a product of random chance evolution. Lewis tied faith and reason together in which Christianity is both faithful and rational. Lewis noted that reason is the natural organ of truth, but imagination is the organ of meeting, meaning. He also said, Christianity is a vision of humanity and the eternal destiny of every human being. And as a result, he fought against the dehumanizing aspects of modern culture. 
When Lewis was 17, let's go back to his friend. He wrote, I believe in no religion. There is absolutely no proof for any of them. And from a philosophical standpoint, Christianity is not even the best. Fifteen years later, he wrote to the same friend, Christianity is God expressing himself through what we call real things, namely the actual incarnation, crucifixion, and resurrection. He called himself the most dejected and reluctant convert in all England. And he clearly became the most influential. And certainly the fact that he was such a disciplined thinker and had spent so many years working through the case against Christianity to finally reason himself into knowing it to be true provided him the basis from which to communicate those arguments to the world. Lewis himself believed that no one would be reading any of his books within a decade after his death. (laughs) On the contrary, most of his books are still in print or have come back to print, even some of the more obscure ones, and his books continue to sell in the millions. We are fascinated with Lewis and his writings, and we continue to be. Lewis wrote of the deepest things, involving a wide range of subjects from a Christian point of view, explaining them in ways that we could all understand. Isn't that nice? Yes. He had a knack for saying brilliant things and doing so better than anyone else could. I want to point you now to the quotes on your handout. And I think my favorite one is the last one, just because it uses the word lunatic. A man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship him than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling the word darkness on the walls of his cell. Um, Go online and Google C.S. Lewis quotes, pages and pages and pages, and some of the things that you have heard before that sound familiar, oh, that's C.S. Lewis. That's C.S. Lewis. He was such an impactful person in his life, his conversion, and we can learn from it. Amen. Thank you.